Good morning, everybody. Get my stuff organized here. According to Webster's Dictionary, the first definition of an agenda is um, a list or an outline of things to be done or considered. A list or an outline of things to be done or considered. And if you're an agenda kind of person, you know that there are times where you are driving your agenda and there are times when circumstances are driving your agenda. So last week, circumstances were driving my agenda. And um, so I, I don't want the message to be about General Conference, but I knew that I couldn't not say something here. Uh, we have an agenda for the service that we planned months ago, and I still think that's the right agenda. Um, but I do feel like I need to say a few things about General Conference um, at this point in the process. So I want to tell you real quickly um, what happened and what's next, and then a personal uh, kind of thought. So what happened? Uh, a elected group of delegates worldwide from the United Methodist Church gathered in St. Louis for a special general conference. That's the ruling body of our church. Um, there were about 900 of these delegates. And um, the topic was uh, around issues of human sexuality and how the church um, uh, talks about and thinks about and responds to these folks. And um, so there were several plans uh, put forward about um, how to proceed in what we were calling a way forward. <clears throat> but at the kind of ultimately what happened was that there were two plans that were the prevailing plans. Uh, the one plan called the traditional plan uh, was going to keep all of the same language um, around our understanding of human sexuality that have been in our discipline since the 1970s. It's only been in there uh, since the 1970s. Um, and, uh, and then some additional kinds of uh, restrictions around that. And uh, so that was one plan. The other plan uh, was called the One Church Plan. And in that plan, there was... Um, a recognition that the church around the globe, the church in the United States and local churches, people have um, different informed perspectives on this, informed both by scripture and by uh, reason and tradition and so forth that we use as our uh, mechanisms for understanding God's truth um, and had different understandings about that. So the one church approach was that we're going to have um, we recognize that there are people with a uh, traditional conservative view on this, that there are people with a very liberal kind of view on this, and that in between those two, there is a whole body of people who are in a more centrist or moderate kind of uh, posture on all of that, and that there'd be room in the church for all of that. And so the delegates uh, debated and talked over a couple of days, and, uh, and, and as the vote came in, 
the uh, vote was by a slim margin to approve the traditional uh, model. What you need to know about that is that um, that simple majority was made up of uh, both uh, conservative folks in this country, um, but then by and large, delegates from um, other countries, specifically and particularly uh, countries in Africa that uh, gave the, the majority vote to the traditionalist view. The American church um, in that vote were about 63%, from what I understand, about 63% in favor of the one church plan that said that there is this divergence of views and we can have uh, people within our church um, of, of all of those views. So 63% of American churches felt that, believed that, um, and that vote did not prevail. <clears throat> so that's what happened. Um, we are now, um, uh, that plan is going before um, our judicial council, which is the Supreme Court of the Methodist Church, because there's some challenges to it in terms of our church law and whether or not it meets the standards of our church law. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen beyond that. So I don't know a whole lot of stuff, uh, to be honest with you. What it sounds like to me, uh, based on the... Uh, things that I'm reading and people that I'm talking to within the church and church leadership, um, here's what I think, and that is that the United Methodist Church of today is going to be very different in the next couple of years, that it's likely that there's going to be at some level a schism or a break um, within our church. And I have, again, have no idea what that's going to look like and how that's all going to work and, and so forth. Um, so that is yet to be, yet to be known. So I'm keeping my finger on the pulse and listening to what's going on. And as I get more information, I'll be letting you know and sharing with you um, what I know. So that's what happened. That's what's next. And um, just a personal reflection. One of the unintended um, results of this vote and, and by unintended, it's not that it was a surprise, but it wasn't the heart of people who supported the traditional plan. But the result is that the broader culture see this as another example of the church saying there is a specific group of people in the world who are not welcome in our church. That's the message. And if you don't think that's the message, then you're not paying attention to what's in the media. You're not paying attention to social, uh, the social media. You're probably not having conversations with people who disagree with the church's stand on this. The broader culture believes that the church believes that there is a group of people who don't belong in church. And that breaks my heart. And it should break your heart. Because it's not true. It's not true. And so what I want to say as lead pastor of this church is that if you are here and you are gay or lesbian or transgendered, you are welcome here. You are welcome here.
If you are the parent of a gay, lesbian, or transgender child, they are welcome here. I had some conversations with some folks after the first service, so <clears throat> they touched my heart. So um, that's the message right now. So there's a lot to figure out, and there is a lot going on. Here's, here's the thing. Wherever you find yourself in this discussion, whether you're conservative, traditional, or you're a moderate, or you're a liberal on this, you're responsible for your own behavior. The way that you talk to others, the way that you talk to people who disagree with you is your responsibility. So I just want to encourage you to do the next right thing. To do the right thing in the right way for the right reason. You can hold strongly a conviction and be respectful to people who disagree. That's what the church does. That's what should make us different than the broader culture. So that's it. That's what I got for you on that, OK? Um, shifting gears, um, this is a Jesus jar, in case you were wondering. If you've never heard of a Jesus jar, it's because we just made it up. Um, in your bulletin, there is a, a slip of paper, a blank slip of paper, and I want you to take that out. Um, he, there's a quiz I'm going to give you. No, it's not a quiz. Uh, but there is something I want you to do. If you need a pen, would you just raise your hand, because there are folks who are with pen that will give you a pen. Uh, so just give them time to get to you, keep your hand up, and, and we'll get you a pen. Here's what I want you to do between now and uh, the next uh, 14 minutes when we uh, receive or take communion. I want you to write down on that piece of paper, what is it about Jesus that you find compelling? What is it about Jesus that draws you to him? What is it that you find beautiful, lovely, compelling, what is it about Jesus that draws you to him? So I want you to write it down. It could be a single word. It could be bullet points. It could be sentence. It could be a paragraph. You may be saying, I couldn't fit it on this piece of paper. And, you know, that's cool because the Jesus jar is going to be up here for the next six weeks and we'll have stuff over by the prayer wall. Um, and so we want you to feel free to be filling that kind of thing out over the next six weeks. But I want you to, you know, as I go through the message and so forth, to be just writing that down, and uh, I'll share with you in a, in a few minutes what we want you to do with that at communion. All right, so that I gave you the first definition from Webster of an agenda. Here's a second definition of an agenda from Webster's. An underlying, often ideological plan or program. An agenda is an underlying, often ideological plan 
or program. You've heard it used this way, right? What, what's this person's agenda? What's the underlying ideology? What's the underlying thing? Do they have a, uh, a secret agenda? You know, all those kinds of things. So you understand that idea of agenda. We're going to be looking over the next six weeks at the book of Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians has been described by one as the blueprint for the church. As the church is being formed, the, the church of Jesus Christ is being formed, the Apostle Paul um, laid out a kind of blueprint, if you will, a foundational document about the church and what the church is supposed to be. And so we're going to be looking at that. And where it begins in chapter 1 is that the Apostle Paul makes a powerful, compelling argument that the agenda for the church is Jesus. Jesus is not an agenda of the church. He is the agenda of the church. And that probably sounds obvious. It should sound obvious. It should sound like, why are you even bringing this up? But the fact is that in the first century church, people got that wrong. All the way through, people have gotten that wrong. Up until today, we get that wrong at times. We know that Jesus is the agenda, but we forget that Jesus is the agenda, and so we put something else in place of, or at least alongside of Jesus, as the agenda for the church. And any time the church does that, we get into trouble. And so churches will put their buildings as an agenda of the church. They'll put programs or controversies, all kinds of things that we put as the agenda of the church. And when we do that, we get into trouble. I had the early experience, this formative experience of this, when I was a student pastor. Um, the very first church I got to serve as a student pastor, it was a, it was a fairly small church. And uh, one of the leaders, I was in a conversation with one of the leaders of that church, and he said this to me. He said, Pastor, we'll take care of the church. We'll take care of the building. We'll take care of the property. We'll take, of the, take care of the finances. You can take care of all of the pie-in-the-sky stuff. The pie-in-the-sky stuff. Like, what? What stuff are you talking about? What, what pie? And Now, I'm 20-something. This guy was in his 60s. Sounds pretty young now, actually. <laughs> he was a young man. I was a baby. Um, but he had lost sight of the agenda of the church. It's not... The, in his mind, he was equating the church to this building that they had and to the property that they owned and to the money that they had. That, for him, was the church. That's not the church. Jesus is the agenda for the church and him alone. So the Apostle Paul in... Uh, in the opening chapter, talks about God's agenda when it came to us and the church. And I want to read a portion of that uh, uh, this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Listen to what Paul wrote. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. 
This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered us with with his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. So what is God's agenda here? It's stated right in verse 5. To adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. God's agenda was to adopt us, to bring us into his family. And it happened through Jesus Christ. That's the message. That's the agenda. That's what motivated God. And really, the underlying motive for God's agenda was love for humanity. God loves humanity. And so he had this plan. We are living in sin and brokenness, and God had this plan of deliverance. That the one who knew no sin, God's son, would become sin for us so that we might have life and the promise of life eternal. And I love this little part that Paul says that it gave God great pleasure to do this. God was excited about this plan. This plan of salvation motivated by love. And here's part of the nature of love. Love is always sacrificial. I don't know if we get that in the broader culture or not. We often think of love as, you know, something that's for us and it, it makes us happy and it gives us pleasure and so forth. And, you know, we, we sing about it and we, you know, write poetry about it and so forth. But the nature of love is sacrifice. It's giving up my own desires, my own needs, my own wants for someone else. God showed his love through the sacrifice of his son. And that's powerful. I've been walking in faith for a long time. And I have heard the story, and studied the story, and read the story, and walked with this story for a long time a God who knows me and loves me and sacrificed for me. And what I've discovered is it is more profound to me today than it was at the very beginning. I am as blown away, more blown away than I have ever been by the reality of this message that the God of the universe would love me sacrificially 
to the point of giving up his son on my behalf. So that's God's agenda. What's our response? Verse 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who believe in his dear son. So, because of what God has done, so, therefore, we praise God for his glorious grace. So here's our agenda. Here's our call. Here's our challenge. Here's our opportunity. We are to give God praise. Now, when you read that, you might be thinking, okay, you know, give God praise. Thanks. You know, let's sing a song. Hoadley, you know, like, don't you want to sing like Hoadley? Yeah. If you're a female and said that, I don't know, but I know a bunch of us guys would love to sing like that. But, but it's, it's not just about singing a song. It's not about praying a prayer. It, you know, that's part of how we praise. But it's really a call to a lifestyle of gratitude. Me in my brokenness, me in my sinfulness have been fully accepted by God in Christ. My sin has been covered. He has paid the price for my sin. Uh, I was with a group of guys um, two weeks ago. It was one of our, the, the Bible studies that, that I'm a part of on a Thursday night. And we had just finished a, a study, and we were about to start a new one. And we said, you know what, let's take a week and go out to dinner together. And uh, so we went to a, a restaurant. There were about 10 of us. And uh, they put us in a back room. I don't know why, but they put us in a back room. And, uh, you know, we were having a good time, and, you know, it was boisterous and, and so forth, and uh, had a great meal. And at the end of the meal, the waitress came back, and she said, I just want you to know that uh, there was a family sitting up front, and they were asking who you guys were. And I told them that you were from a church, and you were a men's Bible study. And they paid for your dinner. Right? And the tip, you know, and, uh, and it was a good tip, apparently. Um, and they left, so we, we have no idea who they are. They paid our debt, right? That's the point of that. Not because we deserved it, not because we earned it. They didn't know us, you know. We didn't know them. They weren't looking for a thank you. They just paid our debt. And it was just this next reminder, this this living reminder of what God did. He paid your debt. And we live lives of gratitude. So, you know, the only way I can express gratitude to that family is to tell their story. Right? What a beautiful thing that they did. We tell God's story. One last thing on this before we go to communion. Verses 19 to 23, check this out. I also pray 
that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. The same spirit in Christ is in us. The same power in Christ that raised Christ from the dead, the same power of God that was in Christ is in his body, the church. And so when we have Jesus as our agenda, we have this kind of power in us to do the kind of thing that Jesus did in the world. That we have the same kind of influence in the world as we put our hope, as we put our trust in him, as he is our agenda, and we are living lives of praise. That's significant. That is world-changing. And indeed, it did change the world. 2,000 years ago, a small band of uneducated, um, clueless people filled with the Spirit of Christ literally changed the world against all odds, against the most powerful nation on earth. They changed the world. And that same spirit is in us. I want to close with a, a, a little part of a, a book that, that um, I'm reading. It's a book by a guy named Andy Stanley. He's a pastor of a megachurch down in uh, Atlanta and um, uh, has written a number of books. But he wrote a book recently called Irresistible. And I just want to read this, this little passage because I think it's, it kind of wraps this whole thing up. He wrote this. It wasn't just Jesus' new message that made Jesus irresistible. It was Jesus himself. People who were nothing like him liked him. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. Jesus invited unbelieving, misbehaving, troublemaking men and women to follow him and to embrace something new. And they accepted his invitation. As followers of Jesus, we should be known as people who like people who are nothing like us. When we invite unbelieving, misbehaving troublemakers to join us, 
they should be intrigued, if not inclined, to accept our invitation. Jesus is the agenda. And when we are living lives of praise, the world gets changed. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do with that piece of paper in hand. Um, if you've already written your thing down, I want you to just kind of crunch it up into a ball in your hand. <clears throat> and I want you to bring it up when you come for communion. I want you to bring it up and there's, at, there's a stand here with a pitcher and just drop it in the pitcher and uh, we'll bring, it, bring them all up here and, and continue to fill this, uh, our Jesus jar. Um, but in the meantime, we're going we're gonna to pray before we receive communion. Okay, so just hold that crumpled piece of paper in your hand and let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us beyond what we could hope or even imagine. That you would love us enough to sacrifice your son on our behalf. That through his sacrifice on the cross, our debt is paid. And we are grateful, God, beyond expression. And Lord, just as Jesus was irresistible to people who met him, people who were nothing like him that liked him, may that be said of your church as well. May we be a reflection in our time and in our place of your great grace. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.